Uh, kia ora koutou everyone. Um, I am involved in a uh, Marsden funded project that's looking at uh, the Second World War and particularly the Māori home front, uh, that story. It's quite a big and gigantic project that has exploded <laughs> um, in terms of its size and scale uh, in the past 18 months since we've been really working on this uh, project. And it's exploded in terms of the kind of sense of what we're looking at, um, but also in terms of the group of people who are involved um, as well. And I'm going to speak a little bit about who those people are uh, fairly soon. But first of all, I just want to thank the Ministry of Culture and Heritage for inviting me to do this. I was slightly nervous about coming to Wellington during, during COVID times and whether or not this might go ahead. So I'm really pleased to be able to be here and, and have an opportunity to speak about this project. Um, it's really important uh, for us to be doing these kinds of public talks and for our project because one of the things that we're aiming to do is really reach communities um, uh, and people who have an interest in uh, this kind of topic because one of the things that we're trying to heavily promote is trying to get uh, this um, story out into the community so we can kind of gather some of those community stories from whānau um, as well. Uh, and one of the reasons why I'm involved in doing this project on uh, Māori uh, home front during World War II is there's this wonderful, rich work, particularly coming out of the ministry itself, led by people like Monty Suta and others, Wira Gardner, more recently, they've been working on um, C Company, D Company, A Company, B Company, part of the 28th Army Battalion, uh, and really kind of bringing to light, uh, making visible some of those rich histories, um, and also highlighting the men and their experiences. Uh, as well. All of that work is also including components of the Māori home front uh, as part of those story, but our project tries to kind of stretch that out a bit more um, and also encompass uh, a wider range of experiences potentially there. So we see our project as adding to and adding value uh, to that work, but not necessarily hopefully stepping on any toes and uh, in, in doing that uh, as well. So we're really grateful for uh, the Ministry's um, assistance with this project so far, um, particularly Monty for um, our having conversations with us about it, um, and also to our advisory group, our team, who have really given us quite a lot of support and advice um, and guidance um, and told us off at the right moments when we're doing the wrong things uh, as well. Um, so our project uh, does three things. It's got three big themes. One of them is looking at um, employment, uh, gender, labour relations during uh, the home front and what that means in terms of the impact for Māori communities. Some of that's been written about in terms of uh, urban migration um, and uh, uh, economic mobilisation, but we're trying to drill into some of our particular communities to see how that plays out uh, in those locations. Um, and my role in the project is to kind of look uh, at that. Uh, we've also got Lockie Patterson from Tutumu, a school of Māori, Pacific and Indigenous Studies at Otago, who's looking particularly at kind of cultural change and shifts um, as a result of the Second World War on the home front. Uh, Lockie in particular is looking at language, but also religion uh, especially. Um, and he's here today, so if you have any questions about that, you can ask him. I'll make him come up here to answer those questions. Um, and then we're also uh, looking at uh, young people uh, in the Second World War as well. So what were the Māori futures that came out of the impact of the war itself? So what we're trying to do is kind of um, think about uh, those people who were born during the war years, someone like my dad, uh, who's Naitahu, who was born in 1943, 
what kind of future did uh, the war shape for him uh, in uh, the next 20 or so years? So that's what we're trying to kind of encompass. Uh, and we have a, a colleague, Sarah Christie, who's doing that work on young people. Um, so we're looking at question of uh, educational shifts during the 1940s, which were quite massive uh, for Māori and within the Māori education sector uh, especially. So that's kind of in a nutshell and a really broad overview of what we're kind of aiming to um, look at. Um, and the, the ultimate goal of the project is um, to have a beautiful book uh, at the end of it um, that kind of uh, highlights some of these elements uh, of uh, the Māori story of uh, the Second World War. So uh, I wanted to also uh, thank and note a whole range of people who are involved in the project. Lockie, uh, Sarah Christie, uh, Erica Newman uh, from Otago who's also involved, uh, Ross Webb who's here today uh, is also involved, um, and a range of uh, other people too who we've got many students who are doing research as part of this project including Alice Taylor, um, and um, Emma Campbell. We've also got our recent PhD, Lee Doughty, who's involved in the project from Auckland. Rosie Anderson as well uh, at Otago. Uh, we've also got students like Hannah Barlow and Stacey Fraser. Stacey's work is on uh, the Air Force during World War II, so I'll be speaking a little bit about her work today. Um, but we've also got a whole range of other people involved, like Hayata Watson, um, Jordan Quinnell, who did some great artworks for us on a summer scholarship. Um, Dylan Thomas um, and Connor Aston too, um, and we're uh, one of the big important things about our project is funding um, those summer internships and scholarships for Māori students, and we've got a few more that'll be adverti advertised at the moment. So, before I get started properly, I'm going to direct you to having a look at our, our website, uh, Te Kainga, the Māori Home Front. Uh, you'll see um, blogs on there, um, some of the research that we're doing is showcased, but also um, advertising for those summer scholarships. So if you know any great, wonderful uh, uh, Māori university students, doesn't matter what university they're at, who are looking for uh, paid work over the summer, um, and they're interested in this topic area and uh, want to propose um, an idea, then please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the first group of students we had were awesome um, and we're really looking forward to uh, what we think is probably the best part of the project is working with um, those young people with really new ideas. So, to move on. First, I want to say that you're going to see a few images in this uh, presentation, um, and I want to uh, indicate that, that some of those people that are in these images, we don't know who they are, there are no names, so you might see people who might be related to you, who are your whanau, so um, just wanted to warn you, just in case, um, so that you're not too surprised um, by it, but also to kind of encourage you to go contact the archives uh, in question if you recognise anybody in those images to ensure that they are uh, named too. Um, and I want to thank uh, those uh, archives that we've been working with uh, in uh, recent times on this project for allowing us to use some of these uh, images. So the story of, I guess, uh, Māori and World War II is one that feels somewhat familiar to us because we may know this image uh, really well of Māori woman uh, in uh, the WAC or the Army Auxiliary Corps. Um, this image from John Pascoe is very well known. It's, it's on, I think, uh, Tiara 
probably. Um, and it's also in a number of books. It's been republished quite a lot, and you may see it in exhibition spaces as well. Um, and this uh, image, I think, is from when the um, battalion, the 28th Murray Battalion, is returning home uh, to Wellington. So the story we know, I think, about the Māori home front during World War II is often uh, images that seem familiar like this, um, or the story of kind of the Māori war effort in terms of kind of economic mobilisation uh, and the impact in terms of um, urban migration as well. And I think those, that history has fairly um, uh, been well told by a number of Māori scholars uh, too. Our project tries to kind of stretch that back a bit and think about what the war did in terms of kind of... Um, operationalising uh, those patterns of movement and mobility um, and the jobs people are involved in, the forms of employment, the wages, some of the basic things like that, kind of getting a sense of uh, a pattern of those shifts uh, and how those are taking place. But I think one of the things that we've noted from the project more recently, one of the big absences is kind of coming to an understanding of how uh, Māori women were involved in uh, the armed forces uh, itself. So one of the things that um, we've been trying to do in the last couple of months is trying to figure out this, um, get a sense of, with the help of uh, Ross Webb, who's doing our work with our project here in Wellington, figuring out um, some of the questions around recruitment uh, and training. It's really hard to find information uh, on that. And the extent to which Māori women were actually deliberately um, seen as an audience for recruitment into uh, the armed forces. Um, so in terms of the project element that I'm talking about today, I'm looking at the Army, the Air Force uh, and the Navy and looking at the home service, not those who served overseas because there are a group who did as well. Um, so that's my focus uh, today. So I want to address a few questions, some of which I can't really answer. So did Māori women join the forces uh, during the Second World War? Why and what did they do and what was their experience like? Um, and how did their service impact on their post-war lives? And see, these are some of the questions that Stacey Fraser, who's doing a uh, honours dissertation at Otago, she's a Parkhouse student, she's looking at the Air Force in general and asking these kinds of questions and Māori women make up a kind of dimension um, of that uh, as well. So, one of the things that I can say is this is really hard to answer some really simple questions <laughs> about whether or not um, what numbers we're looking at in terms of Māori women who joined those forces. It's, it's so difficult. So, um, this requires a huge amount of work uh, by people who have much more expertise than I do uh, on this. Um, and you'll see a list of people here on this uh, slide, uh, people who have contributed in some shape or form to assisting us with actually gathering some data to begin with. Uh, folks uh, like Dan Miller, over there, um, who's been working uh, with uh, the online Cenotaph uh, team, trying to kind of add some of this material of the, of the women who are, who are in the armed forces onto the Cenotaph itself. Um, so we've been very lucky to have some support from a whole range of kind of archives, particularly the Air Force Museum, who have been really helpful to Stacey in sharing some of the enlistment uh, registers uh, and that kind of information to kind of start to actually see if we can find some numbers, um, and start to kind of identify people. Um, but that requires a huge amount of uh, whakapapa 
work to kind of figure this out. Um, and in areas uh, two, in terms of kind of New Zealand's military history, which I don't have the expertise in. So thank God we have a team of people who know much better than I do um, about um, how to kind of start to kind of uh, figure this um, out. So you'll know that wartime labour needs saw the mobilisation of women uh, into essential work uh, during the war years. Um, and this included uh, access to service in the military uh, as well. And this was especially after the entry of Japan uh, into the Second World War uh, in December 1941, um, and then which required, of course, greater economic mobilisation um, to support the war effort and uh, more men uh, made available for overseas service uh, as well. So the Army, the Air Force and the Navy all opened their recruitment to women, forming distinct auxiliary uh, forces uh, I should note too that prior to that, those auxiliary forces being formed, there was the Women's National Service Corps in Auckland, uh, the Red Cross uh, had a transport service as well, so there was a lot of kind of activity uh, going on in that space. So in 1942, you get the Women's Auxiliary uh, Army Corps, or the WAC, and the Women's Royal New Zealand Navy Service, or the Wrens, being formed. But the first auxiliary to be established was the Air Force in January uh, 1941. So as I said, we don't know much about recruitment policy uh, in, in relation to Māori. Um, it appears from what we've seen so far, and maybe Ross can confirm this um, maybe in question time too, um, that they weren't explicitly excluded at all, but we're not quite sure whether or not they were also kind of explicitly included at the same time. Um, so whether or not they were really trying to deliberately reach out into Māori communities and saw them as um, potential recruits for uh, these auxiliary uh, units. Now each of the services worked closely with the Women's War Service Auxiliary, or the WWSA, uh, to recruit women uh, and to manage their placement. Uh, the WWSA, if you don't know much about it, was established in 1940 and it coordinated the women's war effort on a national basis through its district uh, committees. Um, and they dealt with all the registrations uh, of women for uh, kind of employment, but also into uh, the armed forces as well. So if you were keen to volunteer, applicants submitted their form to the local district committee who referred it to the district manpower officer who was part of the National Service Department uh, to decide if a woman could be released from employment to serve in the forces. The form was then forwarded to the appropriate service as indicated by the applicant as their preferred uh, option. Um, and then later on in July 42, there was actually a Women's um, Armed Forces Personnel Board that was established to review any of those kinds of applications that were coming through and to match supply with demand. Um, and that uh, personnel board was comprised of the reps from each of the services, as well as a number of the central, um, um, a member of the central executive of the WWSA. Now, it should be noted here, in terms of recruitment and dealing with those applications, that the WWSA Council had no representatives from Māori groups or organisations on it, and no Māori members uh, at all. And I think that's an important point to note. Um, recruitment of Māori women into the services um, was handled a little bit differently compared to uh, women more generally. So what you had was district manpower officers who are part of the National Service Department liaising with committees of the Māori War Effort Organisation, or the MWEO. So sorry, there's lots of committees and different groups kind of working together um, and makes it quite complicated. And this is one of the complications for us in terms of figuring out how people are getting recruited as through the, what 
committees are they going through and who's dealing with the kind of recruitment uh, process. So as I said, you have district manpower officers who are supposed to be uh, liaising with the Māori War Effort Organisation over applications and employment matters in their local areas. Um, and this relationship, I have to say, was quite tense uh, because uh, consultation did not always take place as was, as was appropriate, partly leading to the establishment of tribal executive committees and a kind of extra layer on top of those local Māori tribal communities committees to deal with recruitment and broader manpower issues. And this was actually further exacerbated in terms of issues of uh, lack of consultation and tensions when welfare officers, uh, as liaison officers, were appointed because they were part of the National Service Department, but there were issues over to what degree were they all supposed to be working for and in uh, Māori communities too. So a lot of the um, material we've been reading lately around this area has been a lot of tension over where these people sit uh, and the responsibilities and roles for Māori communities especially, uh, and their duties to women. So of women in the armed services, we have around 4,000 who joined the Air Force by 1940, August 1943, employed as typists, clerks, dental and medical assistants, and in technician roles. Um, and we've got the Women's Army uh, Auxiliary Corps peaking about 4,600 or so in mid-1943. Uh, and the Women's Royal Naval Service was much smaller, about 500 to 600 or so women. Uh, and that peaked uh, in October 1944. We know that many more applied than were accepted uh, into the services as well. Uh, for instance, there's over 7,000 applications for the Air Force, um, but 4,750 uh, were accepted. Uh, and those um, applications that were accepted were informed by wartime industry demands. Um, so I'm going to discuss that question of wartime industry demands a little bit later. But overall, there's been estimated just up to 10,000 women who uh, joined the forces uh, or in uniform uh, throughout the war. Uh, and as I said earlier, our interest is in those who served at home. Now, lots of great women historians have told us that war delivered short-term short changes to gender relations uh, and did not alter in any significant way the gendered hierarchies of employment. Women moved into men's jobs, but only for the duration of the war, and that this was the case with the armed services too. So by 1942, the number of women working in manufacturing peaked at 35,200, and it remained around that level throughout the rest of the war. Uh, but as people like Deborah Montgomery have shown, uh, this, in effect, was a redistribution uh, of women's uh, work within the acceptable areas of female employment rather than carving out new areas of opportunity. And this pattern holds for the armed services as well. Overall, in the Air Force, uh, most women were posted to kitchens uh, and the mess halls. Um, some served as clerks uh, and also telephone operators uh, or in medical support roles, jobs that fell within the skills tradition traditionally expected of women. But we were Māori women, and that story is what we're interested in. Uh, likewise, in the Army Home Service Division, women were employees, clerks, cooks, waitresses, kitchen hands, pantry hands, uh, and the same in the Navy as well. In the Navy, the trade opportunities were much uh, uh, more um, restricted, um, and where most women, Pākehā or Māori, were working there were in kind of uh, catering as cooks, pantry hands, things like that too. Now... There was some concern initially about the impact of recruitment for women into the forces upon industrial mobilisation. 
Um, there was some uh, concern that um, the impact of the forces, that they were going to be so popular that women were going to be kind of leaving in droves to join them, and that was impact on some of the kind of critical areas for um, uh, wartime labour, those reserved occupations, particularly in industrial uh, manufacturing areas and also in food production um, as well. There's been some work to show uh, that at the time, the majority of women who joined, for instance, the um, Army Corps, uh, the auxiliary, came from offices and shops, so the impact uh, was little felt for industry and manufacturing, but the story is very different for Māori women, uh, and this has a real impact on, I think, this is my kind of preliminary kind of uh, thoughts around this, uh, on the ability of Māori to actually get into the forces when they did um, apply. So the woman that's very different for Māori women. They were mainly employed uh, during uh, World War II uh, in factories and in manufacturing, uh, not necessarily were there in large numbers in shops uh, and offices. Um, and they were also heavily employed in food production uh, as well. Two critical areas where they didn't want to lose labour in terms of reserved occupations. Um, this would influence uh, how many could actually join the forces, because what you might see is people making applications from those areas to come into uh, the forces, but getting knocked back because they were in reserved occupations, basically. And food production and manufacturing are two main areas where Māori women's employment was really concentrated. Um, so that has a really significant impact. So that's a, just a preliminary kind of thought that I've got in terms of some of those patterns, but we need to look really carefully at the, at the numbers. So Māori women's uh, predominance in industrial labour and food production meant they were less likely to be able to move from these areas into uh, the armed forces, even if they wanted to. So I think this helps explain some of the low numbers. So in terms of numbers... So far, we've managed to identify around 180 Māori women who joined the Air Force during uh, the Second World War. There are probably a lot more, but we've managed to get 180, um, and that was hard work in itself, uh, trying to get to that. Um, most of them were posted to Levin, uh, Ohakia, uh, to Rotorua, Whenua Pai, Rangatai, and Wigram uh, bases. There were smaller numbers of Māori women at Tauranga, Blenheim, Hamilton, and Gisborne uh, as well. Uh, and these women came from across the country, with Northland, the East Coast, uh, Poverty Bay, and the Bay of Plenty being particularly well represented from what we can see. And I think that the pattern of women joining the Air Force there probably maps on very neatly into uh, what we see with the um, recruitment pattern with the 28th Murray Battalion as well, where we see a company and C Company being particularly uh, prominent. Um, so that seems to be what the pattern's looking at at the moment. We do have um, a number of women from down south, from Kaitahu, um, who are joining the Air Force as well, managed to identify 11 so far, and there may be more. Um, and we've got one woman from the Chatham Islands as well, who also joined um, the Air Force. We've identified a handful of women who are in the Navy, not huge numbers at the moment, about eight to 10 women so far. 
Um, and we've yet to really start properly on the army in any sustained way uh, in terms of numbers. But at the moment, we've got around 50 names there. So we're looking at the moment in terms of a total number of that 10,000 um, of really just 250 or so. And I don't know if we might even double that at some point. I'm not quite sure. Just because we kind of know that in terms of kind of industrial labour and also food production, that's where Māori women were mainly concentrated. So that's what we're looking at at the moment, 250 uh, so far, and we may double that potentially. So why did they join? And I think the, what I'm going to say will be fairly um, obvious to you and would actually kind of uh, be uh, familiar uh, stories for uh, the Second World War with thinking about Māori men and why they joined as well. To contribute to the war effort, um, for patriotism duty, uh, it was the right thing to do. Uh, because joining the, um, the forces meant potentially escaping less attractive work uh, as well. Uh, the work conditions may have seemed to be more attractive and pleasant uh, compared to working in food production and in uh, industrial labour in the factories. Um, their remuneration wasn't too bad and there tended to be kind of um, a good structure uh, in the services where you could move up um, uh, reasonably quickly, depending on skill um, and your educational qualifications as well, which are really important. Um, people joined because they wanted an adventure, because friends were joining. Sometimes it was also to escape um, bad situations, like a bad marriage. We've got cases of that uh, as well. Um, Sometimes it's because they had whānau in the forces, so there's a kind of tradition, and it's about upholding family mana uh, too. Uh, so there's a family traditional link to military service that crosses generations as well. So some of the names that you see on the list are names you'll see in the military today, uh, like Apiata um, or Mataparai, for instance. They're names that are there in World War II uh, among women who are joining the Army and the Air Force. Just as brothers joined up, so did sisters. Um, and it was not uncommon for sisters to join the same service as well. And I think you'll be finding that pattern with Pākehā women as well. So you've got the Shalfoon sisters from Oporiki who join up together. They're both in the Air Force. Um, you've got the Briars sisters who are really well known from Rāwini um, who join up um, uh, two into the Air Force and one joins the Navy. And when the Navy auxiliary closes at the end of the World, uh, World War II, she shifts into the Army. Um, and two of them leave uh, the forces because they get married. Uh, and one, uh, Catherine, who's very well known uh, in terms of Air Force history, uh, stays on uh, and has a career um, in the Air Force and retires, I think, in the early 1960s. So those are a number of... Uh, patterns that we've identified um, so far. Uh, some served alongside brothers who joined the Air Force. Tracking these women is really helpful in figuring out Māori engagement in, um, outside uh, of the Army, uh, the story we don't really know very much about, so Māori recruitment into the Air Force and also to the Navy um, as well. Um, some served in the same stations as their whānau, uh, as their brothers. Then you've got mums who join up too because their son uh, is in the Army or the Air Force. Um, or you've got a husband who is serving uh, there too. 
So those are just some really, really broad patterns. But what I now want to turn to uh, is some of the controversy that was attracted to this. And I'm going to speak about this relatively quickly. There was a great deal of controversy um, attached to Māori women's participation uh, in the armed forces, uh, particularly in association with um, Sir Aperana Nata. So I'll be speaking a little bit about him uh, for the next five minutes or so. In July 1943, in debate in the House of Representatives, uh, opposition MP and the representative of Eastern Māori, Sir Aperana Nata, questioned the value of the auxiliaries. His view was that they drew young Māori into the towns and the cities, uh, into the orbit of, uh, and I'm quoting, the vile things there, so the temptations of city life, but also you know, um, being exposed to discrimination uh, in terms of wages and accommodation, well, which was particularly uh, something that he wanted to uh, prevent. He wanted um, investigations into employment in 1943. He wanted to see how uh, the wage structure was working uh, for Māori. Were they being discriminated against? He wanted to have an investigation into accommodation uh, as well and access to that. And in 1943, he was also talking about demobilisation. Men were starting to come home. Um, so because we were in a period of demobilisation, he said he was wondering whether the government still wanted Māori uh, in Wellington and in the big cities, or whether they should not go back home. For there's plenty of work for them to do on their own farms, he said, um, rather than in the city. So he really wanted to get those people who'd been migrating into the cities to come home. Our particular concern was the loss of young women from their communities, especially now that men were being released from the camps back into industry. Um, and I'm quoting, our young women are not wanted there. In the Air Force, it is just a stunt. I visited some of them at aerodromes, just a handful of them, and it's not really wanted. But what woman, what girl does not want to appear in uniform and strut down the street in uniform? That has its attractions for the Māori girl, just as for the Pākehā. I've been to the aerodromes, and the actual service required of them is largely housemaid's work. There are, not are there not plenty of park hours to scrub the dining halls of these places, make the beds, and so on, without drawing upon our woman power? Um, and he finished by saying, it is the drift to the towns that I do not like. And he saw kind of the, the uniform uh, as one of those kind of attractions that um, brought Māori women into uh, the cities and the towns. So Nutter was concerned about young women joining auxiliaries, many of whom had a good education and come from good families, very well known in their own communities, who he regarded as doing low-status menial domestic work. This undermined the standing uh, and the mana of those families and their communities, and for him was not a real war job for them, not real war service uh, at all. Moreover, he saw discrimination taking place uh, in the services too. This did not fit with his view of war service as it being about equality of opportunity, something he talked about constantly um, with the 28th Māori Battalion. Now, a week later, um, a Māori war effort conference was held at Gisborne on the 7th of July, 1943, where discussion relating to the employment of Māori girls both in the armed forces and in industry was extensive. That conference included representatives from the Primary Production Council from the East Coast area, from the Army, the Armed Forces Appeal Board from Napier, representatives from the Northern and the Southern Māori Tribal Committees uh, on the East Coast, representatives from the Shearers Union uh, as well, 
Uh, and in addition, we also had the local district manpower officer, G.V. Walker, there too. Purpose of the conference was to assess the Māori war effort in the East Coast and the Wairoa districts, how it was going, measuring that, and to debate uh, what the future should be, what this could, war effort should look like. Now, Walker, the district manpower officer, specifically asked for a response from the people who were present about Nutter's statements in Parliament that Māori women were not really wanted in the armed forces and that they were not properly housed or properly looked after. So Captain Ferris, he was the Māori War Effort Organisation's liaison officer for the, the Army, and he said, and I'm quoting, I do not know what prompted Sapirana Nata to make such a statement. We've been calling girls up to the Army under instructions and they've gone forward and have not heard any complaints from these girls about their employment or conditions in the armed forces. I have found them well cared for, well clothed, well housed and well disciplined, and they would be better ladies for their experience so far as I can see. Uh, another man who was present noted, um, I've seen my own girls in the Air Force and Army. I know they are quite happy and contented and that they are looking well. So it's had some minor criticisms there of Nata's statement, but the Secretary to the Tribal Executive Committee interpreted Nata's statement as criticism around the equality of opportunity that was being offered um, and which was not being eventuated at all uh, within the armed forces. He said, and I quote, a number of girls, in particular at the aerodrome here in Gisborne, have joined the Air Force and they are given the menial jobs rather than the average job route, made to scrub floors and to do all the fatigues in preference to some other kind of work. The Gisborne District Manpower Officer added uh, in his report of the conference to the Controller of Manpower, and this is a quote, I take it that the reason she, that is Māori woman, uh, has been given these jobs is that she's not fitted for work requiring a greater degree of skill or intelligence. The same remarks would apply to the European girl, but where, girl, but where girls, be they Māori or Pākehā, show efficiency, they're given every opportunity to advance themselves. Now, the Gisborne Manpower Officer, G.V. Walker, suggested equality of opportunity was based on skills, but that wasn't the case uh, at all. Entry into the services uh, was not necessarily equal uh, for Māori and Pākehā. Here, we only have to think about educational opportunity uh, at the time. Um, the requirement for the forces was that they would prefer people to have a certificate of proficiency uh, in order to um, apply and then be accepted uh, into the forces. That was their preference. Um, and Māori uh, access to education um, was somewhat uh, uneven uh, during this time and less likely to have that certificate of proficiency in order to able the armed forces itself. So the question of educational opportunity, uh, which was based on racism um, and a very different uh, kind of educational uh, curriculum available to Māori, meant they were less likely to be able to access the armed forces. And even if they did, then they might be less likely to make it into the officer level uh, as well. So Walker's wrong. My point that I want to take away from that, if take away just from this, is that G.V. Walker was wrong. Um, Māori woman's position and employment, in addition to educational opportunity, meant that they were less likely to get it into the armed forces. So the question of Māori woman's absence and their low numbers is probably the more important question than trying to figure out how many there actually were and what that experience was like for them uh, in the end. Um, 
who are certainly at, at the beginning limited trades um, open to women in the services. Those expanded over time, particularly in the Air Force. And there were definitely Māori women who made it through the ranks. Um, but the fact that we can count them on like two hands, potentially, um, is an indictment, I think, of uh, the period we're talking about, but also the services themselves, and said something about the kind of way in which recruitment was operating at the time. So we do have people who worked as wireless operators. Um, uh, people like Catherine Briars and her sister who became accounts clerks and had kind of positions of responsibility. Um, others who, um, like Dulcie Brooking from Takaha, had a position of responsibility in the equipment stores at Ohakia. Others who um, were working as um, in the uh, as aircraft hands, things like that. But most people were doing general duties and working in the mess halls and the kitchens. There were cooks and there were kitchen hands. They were doing general duties. There were pantry hands. They were working in the kitchen staff uh, long hours and where they had high rates of illness as well. Uh, at Rongatai, for instance, night staff worked 45 hours a week. Those on early shift worked 50 hours a week and 51 hours a week for the late shift. Uh, they had nine cooks at Rongatai. Seven of them were only available to work in 43 because the other two were really sick. Um, they were struggling to have people, uh, enough people working in uh, the mess halls and the kitchens. And they were catering for between 900 and 1,300 people in the airmen's mess. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of experience we're talking about, really, for the majority of Māori women who are working in, in the kitchens. In the Navy, you've got fewer recruits and even fewer trades um, available. Um, so these were things that Nutter said lacked status, that were menial work, kind of domestic labour. Now, similar issues were raised again uh, in January 1945 at a meeting of the Southern Executive and Tribal Committees of the Māori War Effort Organisation on the East Coast again, where Nutter was present and he was vocally um, critical of uh, the welfare officer role that had been established, the liaison officer, um, who are working with the National Service Department. Uh, he said, and I quote, they were being made use of to direct girls into employment. The kind of focus for Nutta was always, and, and others who are working with the Māori War Effort Organisation was not on, um, was being on volunteers and uh, volunteerism, not conscription, and that included kind of uh, industrial labour as well. Um, he said that uh, they were working in the interest of the National Service Department, not Māori. And I'm quoting again, one could not serve two masters. 1,200 boys from the district have gone overseas and all we have left are children and old people. We have been stripped naked of manpower and all one can see now is the old people trying to carry on with production. Ngāti Pirau will not allow their girls to go. The coast have answered the call in every way. The girls' first duty is to home. And not by home, I don't mean domestic work at home, I mean the hokainga, home, her people, uh, working in production there, supporting the community. And the place that he was particularly annoyed about um, was Patumahoi, uh, which was a, a state vegetable production farm that had been established um, uh, during the war. Um, and this is an image uh, of some of the Māori women who worked on Patumahoi. Um, this is from the Auckland Library's Heritage Collection. It's part of an album of over, I think, 200 images, many of them of Māori workers on that garden. I encourage you to go and have a look at it. All the images are online. Um, and encourage people you know who may have had associations with that state vegetable production scheme to go and have a look because they might be able to identify some of their whānau there because um, they're all unnamed um, at the moment. Um, but it's an amazing album, really absolutely kind of just a gem of an album, actually. Um, 
NASA didn't want people ending up going into production work for the state. They should be coming home to work for their people. And Nutter was really referring to the lack of support to manage dairy farms on the coast. For instance, in January 1943, a husband went before the Gisborne Armed Forces Appeal Board to seek release from camp of his wife, who was a gunner, uh, at an anti-aircraft post to assist on their 800-acre tiki-tiki uh, dairy farm. In December 1942, just a few months earlier, a father sought the release of uh, his daughter, who was a school teacher, for two months from the Air Force to help him on the farm uh, at Tikitiki. He had a second farm that was being managed by his wife, uh, so the women were running everything for this man, uh, but he also needed his daughter, uh, as she was the only person on whom he could depend for running the milking plant while he was engaged on other work during the busy season. So he wanted her out of the camp for um, a couple of months. So that's what Nutter was arguing for. Don't send people and direct them onto the state vegetable production gardens when they could come home and be helping their families. So one of the other questions, just to end, is we're also interested in what happens after the war too. Um, and this is a much harder story to kind of figure out and tell. Did the Air Force, the Army and the Navy offer opportunities in terms of career uh, for these women? Uh, when did that shift happen? Uh, when do we see uh, changes taking place uh, there? That's not questions that we can answer at all with the kind of limited information we have at hand at the moment. But we can uh, look a little bit at reasons for discharge among the Air Force. People are leaving because they get married. They have to get um, compassionate uh, discharge so they can go and take up care responsibilities at home, go and look after the farm, to look after an elderly relative, their parents, uh, to look after children, um, to, uh, because they got pregnant, as well. Um, medical grounds is another reason. Um, or the one that really, really, really annoyed Apirana Nutter was that they were being released to essential industry without much choice. That question of being volunteer versus being conscriptive became a really big issue here, and that's why Patamahoi is a big, big issue for him in 1945. Um, because what you see with lots of Māori women on the discharge list is that you have D of M authority. Uh, Director of Manpower, so the Manpower's National Service is pushing them into clothing factories, back into the factories, into essential industry, but particularly also into food production, so they're going into some of these uh, locations. So that's what he was critiquing, the lack of consultation uh, that was going on there. I can't tell you much about what happens to a lot of these women uh, after the war. Some people do go back into their pre-war civilian life. They go back to being teachers, for instance, uh, and working in their uh, communities. Some uh, go and do welfare work. People like Anne or Annie Delamere, for instance, get involved in Māori Women's Welfare League, become uh, welfare officers for uh, what becomes the Māori Affairs Department. Uh, some, uh, like um, Mariah uh, Tikawa, who was uh, the daughter-in-law of Apirana Nata. Uh, she had joined the army during World War II. Uh, her second marriage was to uh, this man here, Nopira Takawa, who was uh, served during uh, World War II with the 28th Mary Battalion as well. They became supervisors at Patamahoi, looking after uh, the Māori girls uh, who were working there. Um, and then they took over uh, the Mangarei um, uh, camp, workers' camp, which was mainly uh, of Māori workers. So they managed that. Uh, as well. So they went into um, uh, welfare spaces um, effectively. And as I said, some went back to their pre-war careers such as teachers. 
Others, of course, became leaders in their communities and, and cultural spaces. People like um, Hira Parata, who married um, the radio announcer, um, musician and composer, Winamu uh, Kirikiri, uh, the very prominent cultural leaders uh, in Gisborne uh, during the war and afterwards. Uh, and many more just married uh, and raised a family too. So my call to action for you is not to leave this project to me um, at all, but to um, make sure that you go uh, to the online cenotaph where they've been adding many of the women's names from the Air Force, uh, the Army, and hopefully the Navy at some point. Um, go in there and have a look uh, and add details about them uh -huh. so that we make sure that they're visible that we tell different stories um, about World War II uh, and the armed services, uh, that we make sure that Māori women's service on the home front and all its variety um, is there, um, and to also potentially encourage future historians, much better equipped than I, uh, to write um, a larger kind of collective history in collaboration uh, with whānau, because uh, I think that's the story that needs to be told, ones that are from uh, whānau-centred uh, rather than the, uh, the ones that I've told you today, which is much more about the kind of policy uh, debates and the question of kind of structure um, and the kind of oppression that sometimes comes with um, these institutions too. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. We have a little time for some questions. Uh, one question I, I had, Angela, um, you've obviously focused today on, on Māori on, in the armed forces in New Zealand, but can you say a little bit about Māori women serving overseas? Can I say anything briefly about Māori women serving overseas? Yeah, there are women who are serving overseas, not with the Air Force um, at all. Uh, the numbers that are serving with the Air Force overseas are quite small. Um, so I haven't identified anyone there who's Māori. Uh, the largest group who are serving overseas are with the Army. Um, so, and there are some well-known Māori women who are part of that, um, like Wikatoria uh, uh, Katane, um, who was with um, the nursing service. Um, and then you've also got um, Jane Nepia and a few others too as well. Um, but uh, we're not working in that, that space at all. Um, but it's, there's certainly scope there for people to do a little bit more work to figure out what the numbers look like in terms of those who serve overseas, particularly in the army and in the Middle East and Italy and elsewhere. Mm. Thank you again for that, Angela. So um, with Ngata's um, perspectives then, has it, it seems that it developed a bit from his initial um, rhetoric during World War I about the price of citizenship then. Mm. In what sense? I was just whispering to Brendan, sorry, <laughs> that that's kind of gone full circle mm. from the rhetoric of mm. the price of citizenship, which we heard about after World War I. Mm. And I wonder what brought that change about. Mm. I'm not sure that I can uh, answer that uh, fully. Maybe um, Lockie, I can see Lockie Patterson wanting to get the microphone, hand over to him. Kia ora. Um, I, th I think the whole rhetoric around price of citizenship continued. Mm. Um, in fact, Ngata wrote the book, The Price mm. of Citizenship mm. in... 43. 43. Mm. Um, but that was very male-orientated. It was about the boys. Mm. Um, and a kind of narrow view of what war service 
is and encompasses in yeah. some ways. So yeah. that didn't really go away. I think it was more that he saw cities as being sort of evil places and places mm. that Māori couldn't cope and it was far better for them to stay back in their home areas. Mm. And, you know, by women going out, they effectively were leaving those home areas. So. Mm. Mm. And one of the things we're really interested in is the question of gender and ideas of citizenship. So, and and where that kind of rhetoric of the price of citizenship comes in, is, is there's quite a significant difference there in the way in which women are being talked about, um, as opposed to men. And one of the things we're really interested in is how young men in the cities are also being. What's the discourse attached to young Māori men in the cities? Because a lot of the work is. And discussion, the scholarship is on young Māori women, um, but men, young boys, are coming into the cities as well. And there are lots of labour camps being established around the Auckland area, like at Mangarei and elsewhere, where the focus is on kind of containing these men in one space. So we're really interested in kind of delineating um, how gender and kind of questions of race kind of play out there. Yeah, because. You know, as, as I think you're noting, there is a kind of clear difference in the rhetoric yeah, and the discourse of morality too um, that's attached to the bodies of young women and young Māori women especially become this kind of... Um, um, and, and not just for nutter, but kind of more broadly, the broader discourse, I think, too. Uh, and the, the newspapers, um, the rhetoric is kind of horrendous um, around that and the women get blamed for a whole bunch of things. Yeah, um, but also Nutter sees the cities as a places where um, that are dangerous, places of discrimination, um, where people are vulnerable, yeah, without their families, and I think that's yeah, you know, and he had good reason to worry um, about that and about young people. Yeah. Speaking of that, given that many Maori men are away, but American men are here, mm. is that something that's come through about because they'd be near camps of American men? In mm -hmm. the Air Force and so on. Yeah. So um, the image I showed you before, um, so Patamahoi, that was um, a vegetable, uh, state vegetable production scheme where Americans worked, uh, not too far away from American camps. Um, and what's also associated with this album are some sketches which include American servicemen um, seducing a young women who are associated with uh, the camp. Māori and Pākehā. So yes, Americans uh, and discourse about Americans is a, a part of what's going on too in these cities, especially around Auckland. I mean, Jock uh, would know a lot more about this, having written a great book uh, on this, but the question of morality and American, American patterns um, of um, kind of that romantic glamour that goes with them is a real kind of issue too. And a previous um, life before this project, I was involved in a project on American servicemen and their impact on uh, the South Pacific Command and um, Māori and Pacific communities and the, the um, um, social impacts in particular, so pregnancy, children left behind as well. So there's a lot, in, a lot of discourse kind of uh, going on uh, around that. Um, associated with uh, both Pākehā and Māori women. Tēnā, tēnā koe, Angela. Mm. Um, so this is largely a, a, a Pākehā st structure that mm. these women are in. So was there some kind of recognition of 
um, Māori cultural values or language or you know, have you detected? Not so far, not from what we're looking at in terms of the source material so far. So I think if we were having uh, the whānau-led stories, then I think the having those stories from the women themselves, you know, uh, from that generation, then you might see something different emerge. The material they're working with at the moment are very much official government uh, material and newspapers, kind of those public discourses and those private correspondence that's taking place within uh, the networks of those tribal committees uh, too, yeah. So we, we don't have those, so that that's the layer that we really need there. So, and, and that's why I'm really stressing that people go and be engaged and uh, have a look at what's on there and start to find ways to tell those stories. Some people are doing that already with community histories um, and whānau histories as well, that's there. Um, but from what we're looking at at the moment, not much sign of that. And I think only relatively recently there's been a marae actually for one of the services established, I think. Was that the Air Force, I think? Yeah, so the, yeah, I think the Air Force must be the, yeah, the last one. So, I mean, that that story of Māori engagement and military and the cultural kind of element, there's, there's a book or two or three in that um, as well, yeah. Um, so this, we're only really scratching the surface as what, of what's possible here. Hmm. What, did you want to say something, Lockie? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely photo of um, a chap called Haddon who, um, oh, yes. who organised oh, yeah. um, women from the army in terms of sort of cultural performance. There's and lots of that going on. Choirs yeah. and that kind of thing. So you're having that kind of activity, mm. but it's sort of like a side activity rather than a central thing. It was used really for patriotic funding, fundraising, really, yeah. Um. Kia ora, Angela. Um, I think my question's been answered because I'm really in, interested in the women's perspectives themselves mm. because by the sounds of things, mm. most of the content is coming from everyone around them, mm. about them, rather than from their own perspectives. Mm. Have you managed to find anything or is that what the gold that you think will come out? I would love for that to be, yeah, uh, be a goal that kind of emerges because their voices just aren't really obvious or present at all in the material that we're working with. Um, there are some of those family histories um, and kind of community histories that are, have been done. Think about Parangahau. There's one community where lots of people were in the forces and lots of women joined uh, the Air Force in particular. So I think like the CSIA family, especially prominent. So there's been some wonderful work done there around some of the family stories um, and the opportunities that the Air Force provided. Like one woman, for instance, um, who joined the Air Force, um, she loved it. She really enjoyed it. She got an opportunity to train as a dental assistant um, something that she might never have got an opportunity to do otherwise. Yeah. So that question of what the services provided people, what that meant in terms of their post-war lives, I think is, is, is really missing and we'd love to see that kind of really um, developed. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily us who can do that and I, I'm quite happy with that. We don't need to. I think that that should be something where whānau's are really kind of um, telling those stories and the right person uh, at the right time needs to be... Uh, step up and kind of take that story on and, and write that that book uh, for a whānau at some point in the future. Yeah, it's, it's not us <laughs> at all. But if we can just highlight it um, and bring some attention to it, I think we're doing um, something valuable and 
and useful. But we don't have to be the people who tells the, the story in depth uh, at all. But I'd so love for those women's stories to be at the centre. That would be awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for your um, those great contributions. I think we will have to wrap things up here, and I'm sure Angela will be very happy for anyone to get in touch with, with her to talk about this project. <laughs> you can go and look um, at our website. <laughs> if you're really keen, get in contact. <laughs>